What's going on, everyone? This is George Khalife. It's episode 35 of Let's Grab Coffee. This is a very, very special episode for me. I've been looking to, uh, forward to this for a very long time, and I'm joined today by Dr. Paul Ekman. Dr. Ekman is the pioneer, father, and co-discoverer of microexpressions. He's the author and co-author of 15 books and was a scientific consultant for the hit TV show, Lie to Me. In 2009, Time Magazine listed Dr. Ekman as the 100 most influential people in the world. And since then, he's founded Paul Ekman Group, which provides training tools for people in various industries like salespeople, physicians, therapists, teachers, you name it. He has the cure for communication, understanding emotions, uh, and just reading and recognizing faces. Dr. Ekman, thank you very, very much for doing this. You're welcome. You know, one of the things I realized, uh, and by the way, I just want to show people the book. This is a fantastic book for anyone looking to really dive into this subject. But one of the things that I read and, and was kind of looking at early was you actually started your, uh, your education looking at uh, expressions within the hands. And then you kind of changed and pivoted towards facial expressions. What was it for you that was so attractive to actually study this to begin with? Well, I was always in conflict between being a photographer and being a psychologist. And it seemed a way where I could combine the two. And uh, using cameras and looking at people. What I didn't realize is that when you use a camera in science, you use it in a very dull fashion. You just turn it on and let it run. Very uninteresting way. But uh, the, uh, I, you know, I had, uh, let's see, I had a one-man show of photographs at our local museum, and I used to uh, consider myself that I was going to have two careers simultaneously, a career as a photographer and a career as a psychologist. But when I was drafted, into the U.S. Army, they said, ah, we don't care about photography, you know. Their job is to deal with soldiers who are having, who have been drafted into the Army and are having problems adjusting to the Army. So I've done very little photography. The last major photography I did was when I was working in a uh, isolated culture in New Guinea mm-hmm. many years ago. Uh, God, I don't even... 50 years ago? Probably. You're still a young soul, so don't, don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what, what I find fascinating, too, is um, a lot of your work was inspired by Charles Darwin. You know, in fact, he wrote a book about uh, sort of nonverbal uh, expressions and the difference between cultural and just emotional um, expressions. You picked up that book at a time where a lot of it was rejected. You know, his work wasn't really uh, highlighted at the time because there still wasn't a lot of studies to prove it. You took that, you went to New Guinea, and you studied a population that was really from the Stone Age uh, culture. How, how was that experience? How did that even start? I'm just really curious. It's... Well, uh, you know, Darwin is one of the most famous uh, scientists who's ever lived. And yet, his book, The Expression of Emotion in Man and Animals, was virtually unknown in the uh, scientific world and the general public, 
Although at the time it was published in London, it was a bestseller. It sold 7,000 copies in the first four months, which is would be very good even today. Uh, but it went against the grain of the times, which was dominated by uh, people like Margaret Mead, one of my chief protagonists in life, uh, that culture determines everything that's important about you, not your biology. Now the pendulum has swung uh, at least to the middle and uh, perhaps a little more towards recognizing the enormous influence that our genes have on our behavior and growth and development. Not, the not that upbringing is not important, it is. But it isn't the whole story. And the, we are, we each come into the world different one from another. Uh, I'm known for my work on universals, but of course I'm really impressed with the individual differences that exist within those universals. Uh, I sometimes use a computer metaphor that we all have the same program. We inherit the same program, but it runs on different hardware because right. we're each different people. We, each of our brains is a little bit different one from another, sometimes a lot different. And so things run even with the same input, things run very differently one person to another. Uh, sometimes we find that very difficult to accept. Now, why is it, you know, that my wife is afraid of mice. I like mice. I think <laughs> you, I, I'm, on, I'm on your wife's side with this one. Huh? I'm on your wife's side with this one. Oh, they're afraid of mice. They're very innocent little creatures. You know, they can carry disease, so you have to be careful. But uh, they've been actually... We've learned a lot by the study of mice mm -hmm. uh, about how the emotions work because they, you know, uh, once you get into primates of any kind, you find very strong emotions that have a lot of shared features. Once you get into vertebrates, you find emotions. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, mice are certainly not primates. But they have emotions. Uh, they have fear. They have anger. They fight. Uh, they show uh, some kind of mini surprise. Uh, they show uh, something that looks very much like sadness. Uh, so emotions aren't unique to humans or even just to primates. And, and do you think, because that's one of the things that Darwin discovered was uh, as you pointed out as well, I mean, certain certain sort of emotional expressions that are more universal are also shared by animals. Um, you, you highlighted seven universal signals, but how, like, did you almost know off the bat that these seven signals would be universal, or were they kind of um, were they highlighted, you know, during your expedition in New Guinea, for example? Well, they seemed like a very likely uh, set of emotions. Uh, to start with. Mm -hmm. um, now, what I left out were two really important emotions, but these were emotions that don't have a signal, guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. now, it makes sense that if you're feeling guilty, you don't necessarily want everybody to know it. So you 
a signal wasn't preserved over the course of our uh, evolution for either guilt or shame. You can't tell whether someone's experiencing guilt and shame from the expression that comes on their face immediately when they feel those emotions. Uh, you have to look elsewhere or listen elsewhere. Uh, so those are two emotions that I didn't pursue. I pursued the ones that I could measure uh, and uh, those are the seven that I focused on. And, and can you briefly name those seven just for, for those yeah. listening they might not know? Let's see if I can do it. All right. Here we yeah. go. Anger, fear, uh, sadness, mm -hmm. uh, surprise, mm -hmm. disgust, yeah. enjoyment. Yes. What am I up to? How many? You're six. You're six. I'm counting. You got one more. So that's contempt. You got it. 100% for Dr. Agnes. I love yeah. it. Now, uh, I'm not as confident about contempt. Uh, Why is that? Um, it appears quite late in development. Uh, the other emotions you can see easily in the first year, most of them in the first six months of life. Contempt you don't really start seeing evidence of until uh, well after the second year of life. So that maybe it just takes more cognitive equipment to feel that emotion. Uh, maybe it's an emotion that evolved much later. I l like to believe and propose uh, that we shouldn't have a theory of emotion but that we need a theory for each emotion, that emotions didn't evolve all together as a group, but one by one as there were environmental pressures that favor the uh, evolution and development and preservation over time. I don't know that that's true, but that seems to me the most likely explanation for what we know is true. Uh, for what we can observe now about emotions. Interesting. And, it, uh, you know, I guess a question there is, because you're, what you're really pointing out is actually very interesting. It's almost like as we've sort of evolved, you know, certain expressions came about at different times, given what we've had to handle during those times. Yes. Do, you think, do you think emotional expressions are something that, you know, we kind of learn or, or they're just instilled at birth, as an example? Oh, I think there's really very strong evidence that although learning affects the experience and expression of emotion, that uh, the basic signals and physiology of emotion is uh, programmed into us. It's uh, evolved over time, and it's uh, one of the things that is genetically transmitted. And uh, I think the evidence for that is pretty strong at this point. And universality, of course, would be one of the consequences if that was so. Mm. Uh, if it's a product of human evolution, then every human should have it, and therefore they should, the expressions of emotion should be universal. And most of them, at least the ones that I focused on, the one signaled by the face, 
which incidentally are also signaled by the voice, except you can shut your mouth up and not say a word. Uh, you can't shut your face up unless you put a mask on. So the face is a more uh, useful source uh, for understanding people just because uh, you can't completely inhibit it without a mask. And it's a fast system. Mm -hmm. Facial expressions can occur in a fraction of a second. Right. If you're going to try to keep them off your face, you're going to have a real struggle because so usually they'll, that's where these micro expressions come in. Uh, the most when you're the most successful, there still may be what I've called leakage in a micro expression, a very fast expression, an expression that takes uh, a fifth to a twenty-fifth of a second to go on and off the face. Most people uh, don't see them. Let me put it differently. They see them, but they don't recognize them. So I think it enters their visual system, but they're not alert to it, and they're not uh, interpreting them. Uh, the people I train are the people who use one of my training tools, which is now online, the microexpression training tool, METT, or MET. Uh, fortunate that, I mean, I created that because it got so dull teaching it to people. <laughs> so people wanted to learn. The learner loves it. The teacher hates it because it's yeah. really routine. But mm -hmm. this online tool, you don't need to teach it. Uh, people learn it very effectively uh, that way on their own. And uh, the, you're relieved of the burden of having to teach people. And, and before I get to sort of the, the practical kind of use cases that you're seeing in just in our everyday use, uh, just take me back quickly to, to New Guinea. And I'm just fascinated by this because it must have been so difficult to communicate with the people there, right? I mean, you couldn't communicate, I guess, in English. And uh, so how, how did you conduct the studies over, I think it was six months while you were there? Like, what was your approach to, to dealing with it, with a very different set of individuals? Um, well, you're right. We didn't share a language, but we did share emotions. Mm. And uh, my good luck was that two or three young boys, adolescents, had been to a missionary school and they had learned pidgin, uh, which is a lingua franca that's widely shared by people in uh, Southeast Asia. And I learned pidgin, so it was through pidgin that we communicated. Okay, interesting. What, what, did, was there anything that really surprised you in those findings? Like something that maybe wasn't universal, something that really was? What, what was that biggest kind of takeaway after you had left? You know, I've distinguished two kinds of research. Mm. You can do research to confirm something that you are pretty certain is true. It's confirmatory research. I didn't learn anything I didn't believe was so. I just had the evidence for it. 
Mm. And, uh, and that was critical to get the evidence for because it wouldn't counter to what people at that time thought was likely. They all thought that everything was socially learned and culturally variable. And uh, it was not so about our emotions. And uh, I mean, some of what you get emotional about is what every human being gets emotional about. And some of what you get emotional about is what's unique to your experience. Those are not usually the strongest triggers for emotion. Mm -hmm. Strongest triggers for emotion uh, are ones you share with all other members of our species. Right. Now, they can be stronger or weaker, have been encouraged or discouraged in your upbringing and environment, but it's still the same set of triggers. Can you learn a new trigger for an emotion? Yes, but it won't be as effective in the sense of it won't act as quickly and it won't bypass thought and attempts at concealment nearly as well as the unlearned triggers. Mm. Most of the triggers of our emotions are unlearned. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, you would say it's more like a reflex as well. I think they're more habitual as time passes. You know, like if I'm sad, I can't, I don't have uh, as, as much time to think about it. It's almost just like a muscle. You know, wouldn't you agree? It's, it's... Yes, it is. When you say it's just like a muscle, a muscle contracts when you're sad, a different set of muscles. You know, there's the chief muscle contraction for sadness. Mm. I used to make all these faces. Uh, for some reason, uh, well, that's for a genetic reason, uh, I was born having a lot of control over the muscles of my face. So my mother used to say to me, stop making all those faces, because I used to <laughs> be making faces that she'd never seen before. And she said, it's going to freeze on your face. Unfortunately, she didn't live long enough to see that I could make a living with all those faces. And uh, so it's proven very useful. Now, my sister can too, uh, and that fits with the research uh, largely done in Japan, mm. which shows that uh, if, for example, uh, one person can raise their eyebrow on each side, as I'm <laughs> if one identical twin can do that, so can the other, not mm. so fraternals. So it, there's genetic differences in the voluntary control, the ability for voluntary control of the facial muscles. Uh, There don't seem to be, for the involuntary, uh, that seems to be the same. Speaking about Japan too, I saw one of the, I guess, uh, research uh, that, that you actually conducted there, which was really interesting. When someone is in private, they are typically demonstrating one set of emotions when they're also confronted by someone of authority, they're demonstrating something else, which is more public. Can you talk about that? A study in Japan uh, and uh, I had to try to explain why it was that so many wise and smart people uh, thought that expressions really were different from one culture to another. 
And I coined the phrase display rules, the rules that we learn as we grow up about who could show which emotion to whom and when it can be shown. And those are very overlearned rules that basically manage our expressions. And the classic experiment I did in Japan to try to demonstrate that was to show that uh, if you showed uh, upsetting films to the Japanese, films of amputation and burns and things you don't want to look at, uh, if you showed them to the Japanese when they were alone, you got the same expressions you'd see in any Western country. If you showed it when there was an authority figure present, then you'd only see those in micro expressions. Instead, the Japanese would, without choice, by habit, inhibit the expression of any negative emotion in the presence of an authority figure. Hmm. Is it, I guess that's more cultural. Is that? That's is that, cultural, yes. That's cultural, right? You don't see that in Japanese that are uh, raised in the United States and in a family that's more assimilated, uh, that's not traditional, hasn't maintained its traditional Japanese uh, culture. Hmm. It was talking about just, I mean, this this is really fascinating, to be honest. And and uh, one of the cool things about it is how practical it actually can be. You know, now obviously, like you were conducting your research in, in environments so that you can prove certain hypotheses that you were tackling. Uh, for example, I'm in sales, uh, business development, marketing. Your research, your studies can be used in wide varieties of, of facets. Uh, what what kind of advice would you give to someone who's looking to do that on a practical lens, and how could you actually adopt that kind of training? Well, if you learn how to recognize emotion in the face, mm -hmm. and to recognize it even when people are trying to conceal it, either deliberately or by habit, which means that you've learned how to recognize microexpressions. Uh, that's extremely valuable, not just to the psychotherapist, and not just to the physician, but certainly to the salesperson also for realizing, you know, when they're on the right track with a potential client uh, mm -hmm. or not, uh, when the, the deal has basically uh, been sealed before it has been confirmed in words, it's confirmed in the expressions of emotion you see in the face of the person you're dealing with. So I, when I started out studying the face and doing research on it, there was, uh, there was very little known about the face. Um, the most scientists had abandoned uh, study of the face. I found it too difficult. There was no easy way to measure the face. Um, there's somewhere, there's a list of some of the most famous scientists of the previous century who did one study only on the face and then left it because it was 
uh, too difficult a topic. And there wasn't anything to really build on. Now that, for one thing, I knew that it's enormously rich. I could see it. Uh, and I liked the fact that no one had made any progress. That meant it was wide open and ready for me. <laughs> you found a huge opportunity, right? Yes, I could be the pioneer who you know, mapped the face, brought it into scientific understanding, developed tools that people could use anywhere in the world. And it was visual. And I'm really a person who uh, is very attracted to the visual, to what I can see. Now, there are other people. I have a colleague who's really attracted to what he can hear. And I don't mean to belittle hearing or sound. Uh, we have a dual signal system. The face and the voice often send the same message simultaneously. In fact, if you can't hear it in the voice, you only see it in the face, uh, then there's reason to be a little suspicious as to whether it's genuine. However, you don't have to speak. Yeah, unless you put a mask on, your face is going to reveal something about what's going on inside. Now, the interesting thing, of course, I may have re be repeating myself because I've said these kinds of things many times, is that the face has the other issue of marking your identity. Mm. It's how one we tell one person from another. Uh, it's by the look the static appearance of their face. And so these universal expressions are written on a different platform. Uh, not completely different. I mean, everybody who hasn't been in an accident or genetically malformed, it's got eyes and a nose and lips, and they aren't, you know, they're arranged the same way. The eyebrows are always above the eyes, not below them. Mm -hmm. The eyes are above the mouth on either side of the bridge of the nose. I mean, there's a lot of constancy about the face. Right. Despite that constancy, because of the exquisite set of muscles that control, you know, the only... Uh, on the face, we have muscles that originate in bone but are attached to skin. So they pull the skin. That's what creates the expression. Now, in the, the rest of our muscles originate in bone or they're attached to joints or to other bones. They're not just attached to skin. If they were, they'd just be signaling, you know. Uh, but the face is not only the identity marker, therefore we have to pay attention to know who it is, but they are the primary emotion marker. And uh, I was very disappointed that I first came up with what I thought was a system for measuring the face. And I presented it at a scientific meeting and an anthropologist named Wade Seifer came up to me and he said, you've left things out. For, and he said, for example, where is this? And he did this movement. <laughs> like, 
God. I thought I have to go back. How if I clearly that's a facial movement and it wasn't in the system I had created. I had left it out. So the only way to be certain you don't leave anything out is to learn the musculature and include anything the face can do. Now, most of what the face can do has nothing, you know, is, it doesn't ever happen. You know, there are many expressions that a human being is capable of and never makes. There's no reason. Nobody would, you know, unless you want to be a funny face. Uh, you don't do it. And nobody sees it. But the muscles would allow it. Uh, so, you know, if we ever needed a new facial expression never seen before, We've got the equipment to create it, but we don't have the uh, inheritance, uh, the genes to link it to experience. But we've really got a very clear-cut set of signals in the face for informing others of momentary emotional experiences. That's mm -hmm. what. So it doesn't, doesn't really, it doesn't tell you, I, I, this is something I repeat endlessly when I teach. The face doesn't tell you what triggered the emotion. It only tells you what the emotion is. You, when you see the emotion occur, sometimes by the context you can figure out but you're going to have to talk to the person usually to figure out what triggered the emotion. Uh, expressions don't reveal their triggers. Do you, do you feel like we're we're better off if everybody can read facial expressions really well? I hope so. If not, I'm making a lot of people miserable. <laughs> well, and what I mean by that is is you know sometimes like. Certain things, as, as you pointed out, they're kind of concealed, you know, and, and they might be concealed for a reason, kind of like a white lie. Um, and so it has a purpose. On the other side is, you know, some people like, you know, they might not be able to, to maybe fully control their ability to, to constantly read someone. So, so, you know, is there kind of like a divide or a fine line there? Well, you know, most people are, unless they've only 5%, 5 to 10%, of any population they're going to be able to spot micro expressions unless they get training okay now it only takes an hour of training to learn how to do it so it's learnable it's pretty easily learnable but you haven't got it with most people won't be able to do it without the le learning how mm. and uh, that's what this micro expression training tool that i developed uh does and I hope the world is better off because of it. But you could argue that the world is worse off than I've, I have eliminated a source of privacy by unmasking the face, <laughs> making it harder for you to hide how you feel from mm. others. Now, I've operated it on the principle, which may not be true, but that you're better off Overall, you're better off knowing than not knowing. Give me the choice. Would you rather not know how other people feel? 
or would you rather know how other people feel? I'd rather know, even though sometimes I'm not going to like what I find out. Uh, I'm going to find out that they really don't like me. Uh, they're really angry, or that I've really disappointed them. It's not that I'm always going to like the messages I get from the face. Right. I want to not have them. And I guess with that, have you ever been sort of contacted by, say, the police force or someone where they really need you to come in? Because on the positive, what I can think of immediately is, you know, there's obviously a suspect for a case that, you know, the, uh, the cops are trying to really understand their, their kind of prime motives. So are you, are you brought in at times to actually do that and read someone's face? I have in times worked with the police and with the FBI uh, and helped in, uh, I suppose, in solving crimes by suggesting after looking at video of an interview with different suspects to say, this one is the most likely one. Start with this one. Well, that's been the chief way in which I've given advice. But these days, in many but not all police forces, they've used my micro-expression training tool. They've learned how to do it. Mm -hmm. They know about it. And uh, there was a television program that uh, I tried to stop, but I couldn't. And so because I couldn't stop it, I uh, I wrote a blog about it. That every week it appeared. My blog appeared. It was on Fox TV called Lie to Me. Yeah. And it had as its lead character Timothy. God, I think of his last name. Very famous. Tim. Yeah. British. Uh, let me look this up. Hold on. Yeah. Actor. I'm looking it up right now. Uh, it's uh, Tim Roth. Yes. And it was Tim Roth because I said to the producers, if you want me to cooperate with you, the guy you have to have play me can't be married, can't be an American, can't have children, can't be Jewish. So I got Tim Roth. Uh, why was that? Because that's actually like you, you as, as I, as, as far as I know, I mean, you're, you're married, you have children. Yeah. Correct. And, and yeah. so, so why did you want that character to be so different? Privacy. Okay. And uh, I didn't want him to be a kind of imitation of me. That mm. I've lost my privacy. I didn't want people to see me walking down the street and say, oh, how's life to be going? <laughs> no, I want him to retain a pri my status as a private person. Mm. How did and and how, how was it working with the show? Because it really is a fantastic show, and I'm sure they exaggerate certain things and stuff. But it's it's really one that kind of keeps you on the edge of your seat. You're always waiting for the next episode. So, how much of your influence like was was dedicated for the series? The first year. The principal writer was a guy named Sam Baum, very nice guy. Uh, when I first met him, he told me he was going to do this show. I tried to convince him not to. When I found out he was going to do it anyhow, I, we then became friends. And I, uh, I was a consultant on the show. I reviewed the scripts for every show 
before it was shot and pointed out where it was making mistakes. I can teach people how to do it, but I can't teach people how to do it just with the microexpression training tool. You know, there are already over 30 things you need to learn, and the microexpressions is only one of the 30, and you need practice. Yeah. Uh, and uh, when I used to teach people how to do it, it was a uh, three hour a week for eight week course. There was a a lot of uh, time in teaching time. I don't teach people anymore. It's actually, you know, it's not that interesting. It was interesting the first time or two to teach people. People want to learn it. I've taught other people how to teach it. So, okay. So you passed on the torch almost in that sense. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever had a case where? Uh, almost kind of, you know, lie to me like there's a criminal and he just gets it bang on. And even as a viewer, you're like, I totally missed that until they kind of replay it. So did you ever have like that one case for you that was kind of legendary where you where you caught someone in action that didn't appear uh, to the normal eye? Well, I had a number of cases where I was, I changed who the police were suspicious of and was right and got them on the trail of the actual perpetrator, not the one that they had mistakenly thought was the perpetrator. So I felt good about that and thought it was I was basically doing a public service. But I've trained, you know, there are plenty of people who've been trained in my methods and approach, so I don't feel badly that I don't do that anymore. Mm. Uh, you know, when my friends, you have to remember, I live in San Francisco. <laughs> sunny, sunny San Fran. Uh, well, it's a left-leaning city. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I live here. I like that. Right. Uh, I would consider myself a left-leaning person. Um, but I want criminals to be caught. Right. And uh, when my, some of my friends say, why are you helping the police? I say, do you want more innocent people to go to jail? Do you want them to make those kinds of mistakes? Do you want people who hurt others not to get caught? I mean, come on. We Have you kind of found it difficult, you know, to be an expert, you know, in reading faces, a pioneer in expressions, no. uh, to deal with it with your wife, with your kids, no? Well, the kids, uh, I never... When I have thought that my children were lying to me, I've never called them on them. Mm. And the same with my wife. So I've taken account of it in my own thinking. Why are they doing that? Uh, and I've tried to, my best to not ever put them, either my children or my wife, in a position where they would be tempted to lie to me. But if they have, and I spot it, I never mention it. It's almost like safeguarding that authenticity, right? Yes. I don't want them to be worried that I'm reading their minds, even if I am. And and, and you were you were telling me uh, sort of about your, your children and how how great of a moment that was. 
um, how was it like being a father? I mean, is being successful as a psychologist, I mean, an uber successful psychologist, a lecturer, a trainer, all this stuff happening, but also being a father. How was that for you? Wonderful. My own father, with whom I didn't speak for a decade, uh, we had a very bad relationship. And uh, his favorite curse was, I only hope that when you grow up, your children will make you as miserable as you've made me. And unfortunately, he didn't live long enough to meet my daughter. And it's exactly the opposite of his curse. Uh, but it wasn't just because he, I wanted him to see the opposite. I think he would have really enjoyed her and that it would have been uh, like a salve for him to see uh, uh, a family member that was doing so well. He had an older brother, very sweet guy, but not smart. Uh, drove a milk truck all his life. My father was very smart, and I'm grateful to him for the IQ I inherited from him. But he was uh, a very, his, he, he was a wonderful pediatrician. His patients loved him. He was a very difficult parent and mm -hmm. very impatient and had a real problem managing anger. Mm. And, uh, I inherited that anger problem from him, and, but I learned how to manage it a lot better. But I had help from the Dalai Lama. He did. That was incredible too, and it, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Like, how was that conversation for you? That must With have been the Dalai Lama. Yeah. Well, you know, we 